In 2016, Canada's Liberal government endorsed and promised to implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Fortunately, no one can actually hold them to it because there are problems with the Declaration. First, it does not define Indigenous people. What decides who is and who is not Indigenous? After all, literally, there is no such thing. No people are literally Indigenous. The closest the UN seems to come to a definition is this, quote, Among many Indigenous peoples are the Indians of the Americas, for example, the Mayas of Guatemala, or the Aymaras of Bolivia, the Inuit and Aleutians of the Circumpolar region, the Sami of Northern Europe, the Aborigines and Torres Straits Islanders of Australia, and the Maori of New Zealand. Only minority people living in nations demographically dominated by ethnic Europeans are cited. This looks like a weapon of prejudice, then, for non-Western nations to use against Western ones. In the real world, almost all nations have distinct minority populations. They're the Ainu of Japan, the many national minorities of China, notably the Uyghurs, currently in the news, the hill people of Southeast Asia, Montagnards, they used to be called by the French, the Negritos and Igorot and so forth of the Philippines, the sea gypsies of Taiwan, the tribal people of India, the Maghrib of North Africa, the Kurds or Armenians of Asia Minor, Turkey, the Bushmen, Pygmies and hundreds of others in Sub-Saharan Africa, and so on. Why are none of these mentioned? What is the distinction? other than that these live in lands that have ethnically non-European majority populations. The Charter is also self-contradictory. First, it affirms that indigenous people ought to have the same rights as all other citizens. In the preamble, for example, quote, affirming that indigenous peoples are equal in dignity and rights to all other peoples. Then Article 2, Quote, indigenous individuals and peoples are free and equal to all other individuals and peoples in dignity and rights. Seems clear. But then it outlines a string of special privileges to which only these indigenous people and not other citizens are entitled. For example, Article 11. States shall not recruit indigenous individuals against their will in the armed forces. Now, many states have conscription, especially in wartime. Article 13. Indigenous peoples have the right to maintain, protect, and have access in privacy to their religious and cultural sites, and the right to repatriation of human remains. States shall take effective measures, in conjunction with the indigenous people concerned, to ensure that indigenous sacred places, including burial sites, be preserved, respected, and protected. Now, other religious groups do not have the right to claim sacred places without purchasing the land so chosen on the private market. Jews may not simply claim ownership over the Temple Mount, even in Israel.
and governments do not have the obligation to help preserve and protect these sites. As to human remains, ownership over the graves of ancestors lapses in most Western countries after a designated period. A hundred years is the standard in England. It is special privilege then if this right continues longer for indigenous people. The more so since they are generally not able to establish any relationship with the deceased whose remains are uncovered. Not even an ethnic connection. Rights are generally just assigned to the nearest modern Indian tribe. Article 15. Quote, Indigenous children living outside their communities have the right to be provided access to education in their own culture and language. Citizens of other language groups and cultural groups do not have this right. Even citizens speaking one of the two official languages in Canada do not have this right. Anglophones cannot expect English education in Quebec, and Francophones cannot expect French education in Saskatchewan or PEI, even if desirable. What government could afford it? For a hundred Aboriginal languages and cultures, roughly, some with only a few thousand speakers. Article, and how come Greek Canadians don't get to be educated in the Greek culture? And so on. Article 22. Quote, Indigenous people have the right to special measures for immediate, effective, and continuing improvement of their economic and social conditions, including in the areas of employment, vocational training, and retraining, housing, sanitation, health, and social security. Now, other citizens do not have the right to expect their wealth to continually improve, nor by definition to special measures in this regard. Article 28, quote, Military activities shall not take place in the lands and territories of indigenous peoples unless otherwise freely agreed upon by the people concerned. This clause actually denies national sovereignty over Aboriginal land and assumes that Aboriginal groups should be assigned specific territories, structural apartheid, to at the same time require said state, said nation-state, to spend any money in the Aboriginal territory is manifestly inequitable. It amounts to representation without taxation, so to speak. The ability to station troops on, or to pass through Aboriginal territories might also easily be a matter of national security. Another article in the resolution grants Aboriginals the right to, quote, conservation and protection of the environment and the productive capacity of their lands and resources. States shall establish and implement assistance programs for the indigenous people for such conservation. Now, wait a minute. Given that the indigenes already hold the lands and resources, who is it but they themselves who could be depleting the productive capacity of these lands and resources? Why do they need to be paid in order to conserve? Article 29. They indigenous people, have the right to special measures to control, develop, and protect their human and other genetic resources. Surely this is disturbing in terms of human rights generally and in terms of the human rights of Indians. 
Indigenous communities have ownership over their members? Over their genes? How Nazi is that? Doesn't this imply that no Aboriginal has the right to leave the control of his tribal or her tribal authority? And can Indian governments begin breeding people selectively for the genes they own or want? And note the disturbing possibility as well that if Indians are to be held responsible for their own genetic makeup, they can then logically be blamed as well as rewarded for it. This is racism. This is the essence of racism. Indigenes are also granted, quote, intellectual property rights over their, quote, cultural heritage. No other group is given such rights. Germans are not accorded ownership over the works of Beethoven because he was related to them genetically. This is pretty self-evidently unjust and unreasonable. Governments are further required to protect indigenous, indigenous groups from, quote, any action, not any government action, but any action by anybody, with the, quote, aim or effect of depriving the Aboriginals of their ethnic identities or cultural values. Hang on. If an evangelist convinces an Indian to convert to a different religion, for example, isn't he depriving him of an element of his ethnic identity and cultural values? What if his culture values things like child sacrifice, torture, or slavery? You can't deny the possibility. How can this apply only to Aboriginals, but not to people who, in the general population, who convert from, say, Catholicism to secularism, or Protestantism to Buddhism? Can only Aboriginal cultural values be protected? Is this equitable? What about converting Christian Indians, because most Indians are Christian, what about converting Christian Indians to paganism? Isn't this subverting their current cultural values? And how do you assign guilt? Who is it who has actually made some poor Indian change their opinion against their will? Was it some TV show? Something in the local paper? Who knows? How can you tell? What about an Aboriginal who converts a second Aboriginal to a different religion? Has she committed a crime? Or is this a crime only possible for non-Aboriginals? Now, how about a teacher who teaches an Indian child to read and write? Or how to drive? Somebody teaches an Indian how to drive. That's how to use a wheel, right? None of these are found in the very traditional Indian culture. No reading, no writing, no wheel. So has a crime been committed? But none of this, none of this is the biggest problem with the UN Declaration. The biggest problem is a requirement that no law be passed affecting indigenous people without their prior consent through their own institutions. There are over 600 recognized native governments in Canada. Just in Canada. Now imagine requiring the consent of all in order to pass any law. For any law 
passed by the federal government is going to affect indigenous people. Any one of these groups, perhaps a few hundred people, could then veto any Canadian law. This sounds more like autocracy and an entrenched ruling class than equality. The resolution also reserves the right of traditional governments not only to select their own membership, that's Article 33, but also to, quote, determine the responsibilities of individuals to their communities, that's Article 35. Now, literally, this indeed means that individual Indians are fully owned by their government. Any Indian government finding itself unpopular can remain in power even if they're nominally democratic by stripping any dissidents of tribal membership or again extending membership to somebody who promises to support them. And then there is no legal limit to what they can demand of their members. There's a word for that when done by non-Aboriginals, the word is slavery. This is not equality, and this is not human rights. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People moves in the opposite direction. Thanks for listening.